Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Trisha Kaffer, your host, New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's guest is Jackie Bowring, and the book is Melancholy in the Landscape, Locating Sadness, Memory, and Reflection in the Landscape, published by Routledge in 2018. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tricia. Uh, so let's start off with, uh, can you tell the audience um, about yourself and your educational background? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Professor of Landscape Architecture at Lincoln University, uh, which is down here in New Zealand. Uh, my background is as a geographer originally, and then I went on to train as a landscape architect and uh, worked in practice, including in London, and I've been teaching for about 23 years now. Oh, well, where did you graduate from? Uh, from Lincoln University, so I'm very loyal to Lincoln University where I over there. <laughs> over there. Over there. I did a PhD in landscape architecture in New Zealand, which was at Lincoln, so it's been oh. the place where landscape architecture has really happened for a long time in New Zealand. There's a couple of other programs that have developed since, but we're actually celebrating 50 years of our program this year. Is quite a big moment. Wow, 50 years? Yeah, which is relatively old for a landscape architecture program, you know, being quite a recent profession. So, yeah, it's quite an achievement, really. Yeah, that's true. I can't think of, I, I don't know for sure, but I can't think of too many U.S. schools that have been doing it. Maybe UF at University of Florida in Gainesville would be the closest, but I don't think yeah, I don't think there's too many programs that have been uh, going for that long. That's pretty well, amazing. I think probably the oldest is Harvard, and I suspect they've been going for about 100 years or more. So, yeah, oh. they, they would uh, beat us on that. But, yeah, certainly um, and, yeah, much quite a good record for a program. So we're going to have a big party in November with a cake. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Am I invited down under? Sure, come, come, come and see us. <laughs> I will. It's nice here in Miami, but that would be nice to visit New Zealand. Um, so uh, tell us um, a little bit about your book. What was your motivation for writing it? Uh, my motivation was really to with, I guess, a concern that a lot of our thinking about landscape architecture can be a bit one-dimensional, and it reflects in large part uh, some wider cultural issues of thinking about how we are in the world. So there tends to be quite a, um, I suppose, a a feeling that we're happy all of the time. And there's a lot of uh, books and workshops and various self-help programs on around the world about how to be happy. And with that comes a pressure to be happy and the suggestion that if you're not happy, there might be something wrong with you. Uh, And you kind of see that in landscape as well, so that we focus on the idea that uh, maybe a successful landscape is one where you see a lot of happy people and we don't really make space 
often for landscapes which are about different emotional sensibility, uh, places where it's quite appropriate to be sad or to be quiet and introspective. And so I'm really advocating not just for melancholy as in the title of my book, but really for um, a whole spectrum of emotions when we think about the landscape. So that's true because humans, we, we go through during the day, like uh, for instance, I was, I was just in traffic and it's, you have, you, you, you hit all emotional levels of yep. uh, <laughs> even a streetscape. I was just, just kind of, we were talking about that. I was thinking about, like, well, you get a green light, you feel happy. You hit a red light, you get frustrated. <laughs> yep. Yep. There it is in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's our whole human emotions right down one street, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, Tell me about what, what is an emotional landscape? What does it look like and, and what are the benefits of having a melancholy landscape? Well, uh, the benefits of having a melancholy landscape is that it does give the opportunity for that um, emotional spectrum uh, to be supported in some way. So it allows us to make space for those other emotions to happen. In terms of what it looks like, it might even not be so much about what it looks like, but what it feels like. So it might not even be that apparent um, visually. So a lot of when we think about emotion as well is opening up to those other senses. So it might be a place that's quite subtle in design terms. It could be something as simple as the way that a seat is placed into the landscape to encourage you to sit and reflect on water in front of you or something like that where you suddenly feel that you can slow down uh, you are having a bad day or you know if there's something that you really need to process then it allows space for that to happen instead of that sense that you are constantly stimulated that we get in some landscapes and in our lives in general you know the whole sort of debate that's going on at the moment about the dominance of our screens in our lives and that feeling that people are often just looking for more and more uh, self-reinforcement or fulfillment through whatever is happening on social media, to just step away from all of that and move into a landscape which is about emotion. And it could be, as I say, all kinds of emotion that place there. So, so melancholy, you know, it. we talked about this before, it was um, not just a place for memorials, but just a place, yeah, to, to calm and, and soothe yourself um, at the end of the day. Um, can you talk about some projects in your book that uh, reflect just a more calming and, and soothing uh, landscapes? Yeah, sure. So um, even if we go back to some of the um, 18th century gardens, where they were actually quite good at dealing with that rain and how you might move within a landscape. Um, I'm just thinking most of the, the ones in the book are, are probably in, in relation to various traumas and disasters that have happened. But there's also the, the simple um, aspects like um, sound, as I mentioned before. So some of the really interesting projects that I explored were to do with acoustic mirrors or sound mirrors that are actually ruins on the coast um, in Denge in England. And these were huge concrete concave structures that were precursors to radar and they would capture the sounds of approaching aircraft. And, and now they're just left there derelict in the landscape as these very enigmatic objects 
um, they still work, of course, in terms of the acoustic aspect of it. Enigma to them does, I think, induce that feeling of melancholy. It's like um, something that was there that's now gone, something that we can kind of, I suppose, commute with in some way as well. And if we talk, yeah, sound in a landscape. Can you can you design sound into your landscape? Yes, you can design sound into the landscape in a range of ways. So, I mean, that's one way of capturing sound um, using concave forms, what are sometimes called whisper discs and so on, um, in ways of highlighting sound. So you can also, of course, use uh, recorded sound. There's a really lovely example of a memorial in Berlin, the memorial to the gypsies, the Roma, uh, and that has coming through the trees around the memorial and um, the sound of violins playing, you know, incredibly melancholy just a quite a subtle sound, so again, not something that's overstimulating or invasive in terms of your experience of the memorial. And the counter to designing sound is also to design silence. And silence is quite a rarity in our world today. You know, we have a lot of uh, noise around the place, and the formalising of that, for example, in the recognition of a moment's silence or two minutes' silence at memorial events can be one of the most powerful experiences of landscape and I've been in a a few situations where that's happened and it's not just that the sound of people talking in your immediate setting is silenced but people tend to become very still they don't move the whole landscape is kind of suspended for a while and you have that really heightened or the ambient sound that makes up our world you know distant bird song uh, the sound of the wind in the trees, and a real appreciation of all of that as well that comes through that recognition of silence. That's true. We were talking about that. Um, and uh, even now, you know, uh, when I do these podcasts and stuff, it's like I was trying to find, I'm out here broadcasting, actually, ironically, outside at the moment. And um, <laughs> I was like, where am I going to find a place that's quiet? And that's, that's really kind of hard to do. Yes, yes. Um, well, I, I've read a few things also about, you know, how some people when they go to have a, a vacation or as a holiday, as we would call it in this part of the world, um, <laughs> uh, part of that consideration might be find somewhere that's quite quiet. So even places like um, up in the Arctic Circle and things like that where you're, you're away from all of civilization, that one of the main attractions in a place like that, uh, as well as spectacular landscape, is this immense Violence that you can be engulfed by. Well, that kind of even reminds me a little bit of a commercial on TV I saw. Uh, I can't remember who it was advertising, but they or they were camping out in the woods, and and the city dwellers were so shocked by the silence that they had to put on an app for like um, <laughs> city music. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. <laughs> well, that says it all, really, doesn't it? About um, how our worlds are shaped by noise these days. <laughs> That's true. They were just so shocked. It was such a, 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 a so jarring for them to have silence. Uh, and they were so used to um, yeah. an urban soundscape of noise. Um. I think one of the other things that happens as well when you're away from the city, um, and I know I've experienced this as well, when you're really away from any sense of civilization, you get that incredible darkness and the night sky becomes infinitely deep. And there was even. Um, I think it was Pascal who wrote about his his kind of um, 
fear of that sense of infinity. And again, it's a very melancholy thing because you don't know, you know, you're looking up into this night sky and it goes on and on forever and that sense that there's no edge to it uh, is a little bit unnerving in a way. It's almost like you could, you know, fall into it. <laughs> That's true. And then it's like, wow. Uh, yeah, here, um, it, I'm sure you have New Zealand. I was thinking in the United States, you were saying that, like, the uh, Montana is considered the big sky country and yeah. how... Uh, yeah, the, the the night sky, uh, or as here in the South Florida, as you go, as you go further south um, into the Keys, how the night sky gets darker and darker, and uh, how different that is uh, from being up here in the city in, in Miami. And um, uh, yeah, well, we even have like um, dark sky reserves here. So some of the places that have been very important for astronomical observatories, they actually have regulations around them in terms of how much lighting those towns can have and I think that's you know it's a way again of designing the landscape which is not a physical thing it's not to say that they've put in any structures or even planted anything but they've actually changed the way we experience that landscape by saying we're going to stop the light down and there's also a lot of interesting research about the fact that you know sometimes we're afraid of having dark landscapes because we think that crime increases and everything but the research apparently shows quite the opposite well, what do you mean by that? I I, uh, I grew up in a small town, so to me, being outside, we used to go outside and play hide and seek as a kid, and I, I love the darkness. It was it was fun. Yeah, yeah. It's the thing that think they need to have everything illuminated all the time, or crime will increase. You know, they're actually afraid of darkness. Um, and there's a very interesting book called Constructed Ecologies by Margaret Gross at the University of Melbourne, and she discusses how research shows that if you keep increasing light, in fact, doesn't really make any difference. I think it makes no difference, or maybe it even increases the crime statistics. So we're, we're working on kind of a false premise and that feeling that everything has to be highly illuminated to make us safe. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I'd like to see that research. That's interesting. Yeah. Because um, uh, sometimes what you think is true is not always necessarily true. No, and it's amazing how we can really kid ourselves about that sort of thing. And, her, and in fact, her book goes quite a, through quite a few examples of how la- landscape architects are not particularly good at um, finding out their research. Uh, she would be quite a good person to talk to if you can about her book. Oh yeah, that would be great. A um, link about it, yeah. Um, yeah, because as you're designing and thinking about, uh, yeah, what, what makes it safer? Yeah, we're kind of taught that too a little bit, or, or just I think this is general, you know, cultural thing that you think that that light will make mm. you safer. But I don't know. I I can't say that. I, I've gone through other cities in Europe and everywhere, and I was just as safe in a in a in a dark space as I was in a place that was highly illuminated. Maybe you're right. More so, there's less. There's more pickpockets out there because everybody was yeah. out there. Well, the other interesting point that she raises too is that constant high levels of light that we tend to have in cities is actually really bad for the ecology as well. Mm. You know, it does interfere with the the daily rhythms of, um, you know, how plants, birds, insects and everything, you know, you you actually need darkness for them to um, be able to operate properly. (laughs) That's true. Uh, The biology of it. Yeah. Um, well, you talked about in your book also about shadows or uh, uh, say, liminati. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, can you talk? Can you talk more about that? 
Yeah, liminality is uh, a very melancholy condition. It's a kind of a condition of um, edges, betweenness, and that's some of the places where uh, perhaps the most melancholy, for example, the edges between day and night, you know, the whole time of twilight. We talked before about how long the twilight is in this part of the world, especially uh, during um, summer when the evenings just go on and on. You get that very strange quality of light where it's not daylight and it's not darkness. And uh, there's sort of a, almost a, set, a brooding sort of sense about that kind of light quality. And also the, the liminal conditions, the between conditions um, of spring and autumn or fall, as it's called there, which is also often seen as the, um, the season of melancholy, autumn, where summer is passing away, the autumn leaves are falling, and there's, that, again, that sense of a beautiful sadness that comes with that and that quality of the, the afternoon light that you get up with long shadows and, and that feeling that winter's coming, which I guess is where you might be up to in your part of the world at the moment. We're happily in spring at the moment. Um, but that, yeah, that feeling of uh, becoming perhaps a little bit more introspective as the cold weather arrives. It's such an interesting contrast. How, yeah, we're going, we're going into our fall, and and you're coming into your spring right as we're speaking. That's right. Yep. So I'm looking out the window at blossom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess in Miami it's not quite the same, but no, there is a, a sense of fall down here. You can feel just a slight crispness to our air. That um, it, it, there is a little bit of a change. It's just it's just more subtle. Hmm. Then, uh, then maybe, of course, up north, it's even even north Florida, it's a little more dry. So, yeah, you're talking about that before. Like, how long are your twilight hours, and how do you design, or how do you think about your landscape design in that part of the world when oh, the lighting is so different? Yeah, I don't know how how sort of explicitly we think about it, but it's certainly that idea that. Um, we could be encouraging people to occupy space a little bit more in the evenings than maybe we do. So although we have a long twilight, it's not particularly warm. A lot of the time we kid ourselves that it's quite warm, but in fact it can be quite cold. So even in a, in a long summer's evening, the kind of, I suppose, the dream that we might be sitting outside for hours in the twilight, uh, it's more likely that you would have to have some kind of um, heating or something like that to, to be able to do it comfortably. But certainly um, there's even that kind of, I suppose, an absurd idea in a way that you could have a landscape that was just a twilight landscape and you would encourage people to come to it at that point of the day because that's when you'll be able to experience the shadows. And we do have some events like, uh, you know, lighting up the dark where we go into the botanic gardens and, and which you would, again, you wouldn't normally do late in the day, but the magical surreal quality that comes with that light in the dark in a landscape that's quite familiar but looks very different when you experience it that, at that time. Oh, well, let me ask you, so with your book, um, how do you see this book uh, being used by students um, and professionals in the landscape architecture field? Well, I hope that it will be a way of stimulating some other ways of thinking. I certainly don't intend it to be any kind of like um, a set of design directions or anything like that. I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in in terms of teaching landscape architecture and designing is looking at ways of experience the world. And I'm hoping that the book will be a way of opening out people's minds in terms of 
uh, getting beyond what can be limited ways of thinking about time, space, health, like we've been talking about, and encouraging some other emotional uh, opportunities in design, even looking for other opportunities of things to design rather than what can be a, a pretty limited range of things uh, in our repertoire. Do you think that uh, in melancholy that, you know, because we have a lot of, we talk, talk about, you know, you've got a lot of monuments um, for disasters or wars or, or remembrance, uh, et cetera, but uh, what about, um, you know, peace monuments like uh, the one in Paris uh, at the Eiffel Tower, they have uh, every, or try to get every language uh, there at the end at the Chasse de Mars, um, mm. you know, a word for peace. Yeah, very much so. And um, I mean, the city where I live, Christchurch, we've been through some pretty awful things over the last few years, including uh, terrorist attacks on our mosques earlier mm-hmm. this year when 51 people were killed. Oh, yeah. The response to that has been a lot about peace rather than reflecting on terror and certainly not reflecting on the terrorists, but thinking about ways that might be found in landscape form or they might be found in the way that we are with one another because some of the most dramatic things that came out of that response was an enormous floral tribute you know, that would take your breath away when you see it with just a mountain of flowers and so many messages, really heartrending messages about that real desire to come together in peace and to show araha, a Māori word for love that sort of talks about connection, kiakaha, which means be strong, um, a whole lot of unifying messages rather than turning singularly to um, you know that moment of terror to think about what can we do to get beyond this. Yeah, I was thinking about when you're talking about that, like uh, we had up here um, in Orlando about, I guess it's about two years ago or so, uh, the uh, the gunman that uh, attacked people at the nightclub uh, Pulse. Mm. And um, I visited that because we had our ASLA conference up there, our Florida chapter conference in Orlando this year. And, um, and what... Uh, an immensely powerful it was just you could just feel the energy there it wasn't sad but it was just like so uh quiet and just strong maybe it was every just a few people there and how yeah it was very simple the landscaping was very very simple yeah yeah and that's the thing i think simplicity is can be one of the most powerful ways to design in that kind of context rather than trying to impose a particular message on the people that might visit a memorial. We can tend to over-design in some of those situations and it's part of the whole spectrum of emotions and in, in particularly in this area of melancholy is to encourage people to, I suppose, take a leap of faith in the way and get into their own emotions as well and be willing to do that because a lot of the times when some of the more conventional memorials that we might look at, they get really obsessed with telling you exactly what happened, how many people died, when you know everything happened, lots of data about the whole thing. And all of that, almost like an um, objectification of what went on, all that objective data can become sort of a shield that keeps us away from that subjective dimension of the design, you know, that we're almost too afraid to confront 
the horror of something and actually feel it in ourselves. We look for safety. We look for signs and explanations of what went on. Of what, yeah. Um, and yet, yeah, it's such, wow, such an incredible balancing act between um, being respectful and, and acknowledging, you know, what happened versus, um, you know, trying to look for peace and resolution. Yeah, and it's a big challenge for um, society at large as well as for design disciplines like ours. You know, what can we really contribute to something constructive in response to all these kinds of terrible events that have been happening? I've got um, a couple of master's students at the moment who are working on memorials, one looking at uh, memorials to cultural disasters, things like genocide and terrorist attacks and so on, and the other one looking at natural disasters and has just returned. I just saw her walking past the window. She's just come back from Japan where she's um, looking at responses to the earthquakes over there and tsunami. And from that landscape perspective, again, it's just amazing to see how people have worked through, as you say, you know, how do you balance those things up? How do you both remember but not cause people to constantly relive the horror of something that happened? which uh, can be a bit of a, I suppose, a trap in design sometimes too. Yeah. It's, uh, can you think of a, an example, a good example in your book that, that uh, kind of brings all of that together? Um, let me think. What would be a good example? Um, I suppose one of the, the most examples of a memorial, and it's not one to a huge atrocity or a huge disaster and like that. It's the death of one individual, which is the... German philosopher Walter Benjamin, who committed suicide in a little town called Port Bou, which is on the boundary of Spain and France, when he was being persecuted by the Nazis in the Second World War. And the Israeli landscape architect, Dani Caravan, designed an amazingly simple, again, um, you know, allowing that space to engage with your but also extremely made up of a number of components, one of which is a steel staircase that directs you down towards the swirling ocean below. And so your whole gaze is focused on this um, turmoil of the water and that sense maybe that it's capturing something of the turmoil turmoil that Benjamin went through um, before he took his life. And you walk down those steel steps. When I was there, it was it had been raining. They were very slippery, and there was no handrails or anything like that. And it, it you know, yeah. really on the edge of safety, uh, walking towards what is actually a glass panel that separates you from falling um, out the end of it. So you do, feel, you know, you felt really at the edge of comfort. It was uh, challenged you, put you in a situation. Um, apart from to have an emotional experience. And then there's a couple of other little moments of that memorial in other parts of the site, one of which is quite simply a little steel cube um, on a steel platform that you sit on and you look through a fence at a beautiful view of the Mediterranean and that fence, you know, is quite intentionally a separation, that sense of um, pause or stoppage that he experienced in his own life. So it's all set up in, a, in quite a subtle way and you can move between these different components and slow things down. That slowness is so important part of the emotional landscape as well. Rather than just, for example, quickly visiting a memorial, reading the plaque, 
thinking that you've got the whole, you know, message about what that per- person's life was about and moving on, it actually requires you to spend some time thinking about it. Uh, well, that's interesting because recently, when you just said that, it reminded me, um, it, now it is a beautiful memorial. It was uh, for, uh, ironically, a hurricane. Um, uh, in the Florida Keys, uh, right, was they were uh, working on the overseas railroad and um, an unexpected hurricane is about 19, early 1930s uh, came and a lot of people died because they couldn't get out. And um, But yeah, it was it was a place you kind of go and sit, but you kind of read the plaque and then you kind of move along. Hmm. Hmm. Instead yeah. of yeah, being like an experience of it. And, and I wonder how that could be uh, redesigned in a, in, a, in a landscape to allow people to, uh, like you say, experience something that they might have gone through. Uh, and um, you know where I'm getting at? I wonder how to, how to, how would it, how would I wonder how it could be redesigned so that it was yeah, not just a project, project, wouldn't it? To think about how to design a particular site in a way that would encourage that cause and that sense of um, people wanting to spend some time being immersed in all of that would have been in terms of uh, terribly dramatic and presumably the legacy of what those people were involved with if they were involved in you know constructing a piece of infrastructure and one of the memorials a hypothetical project that i designed was a memorial to some road workers that died building a viaduct through our southern alps and you know the fact that they had died making the roads safer for everybody else seemed the ultimate irony and i felt that it needed recognition in some way so that we could um, reflect on that when you're passing through this very spectacular road through the mountains. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, the irony of it. And then you know they were working, and um, they just got caught in a just just down too far, and they just couldn't uh, get the train down there in time. Of course, it's before all of our radar and tracking technology, etc. And they just they just didn't have an opportunity to get out. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, making a sense of uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, a sense of entrapment probably is what they went part of what they went through. Yeah. Uh, probably panic and not being able to to get out. Yeah. Because, in, a, in a design terms, how might some of that be captured? Not in a way that you necessarily want visitors to suffer. <laughs> no. <laughs> but at least to. Um, be able to project themselves into that feeling that lingers from that particular event. Rather yeah, than I don't mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't mean to do that to people. No. <laughs> I just, but, but just a slight experience of what they might have have gone through instead of just yeah, walking up, reading a plaque. You know, they yeah. they died, and you know, we we. They have a flag once a year on Labor Day, and you know that's it. That I guess that is nice that they do get that at least that remembrance. But um, but yeah, that's yeah, that could have been done. Yeah, that could have been done. What's another project in your book that you'd like to to tell our audience about? Uh, uh, I always stop everybody at least this part of the way through. <laughs> Well, I suppose one of the, the um, not so much a, a singular project, but a group of projects that I found really interesting once I started getting into it, because 
Um, in Christchurch after the earthquake, there was a temporary memorial which was constructed, uh, which was 185 empty chairs. So we had 185 people lose their lives in the earthquake. And this memorial sets up um, a set of just quite ordinary chairs, as you would see in a domestic interior. They're all painted white. Um, and they are very variable. So there's like, you know, a big armchair, uh, maybe a chair for a child. There's a high chair, a wheelchair. Um, and they have changed a little bit over time, too, because being just interior furniture, they've, they've sort of experienced the ravages of the weather and so on. But getting to grips with that uh, memorial that was about empty chairs, I started um, unravelling a whole legacy of these empty chair memorials including some that remembered uh, the holocaust from uh, second world war um, some uh, oklahoma for example the site of the oklahoma city bombing that's one of the most powerful parts of that memorial is the empty chair component of it which is one chair per person and the chairs really speak loudly in all of these situations about the loss of individuals and there's sort of a parallel to that uh, because after the um, mosque attacks that I mentioned earlier, one of the local churches here created a memorial that was 51 uh, empty shoes, pairs of shoes, because shoes are so important in the culture of, of prayer for the Muslims that you take your shoes off to pray. So they, it was this very strongly symbolic element of the shoes and also the emptiness of them and how shoes depict so much about an individual. And there's another um, amazing memorial on the banks of the Danube, uh, which is empty chairs as well, of a moment when um, there was a, a shooting of Jews into the river there and this incredibly poignant sight of these shoes that have been captured, I think, in bronze or something like that, uh, along the riverbank, again, showing that sense of individuality and the loss of those individuals. And I think it's a quite powerful way of... Uh, speaking about melancholy through designed form. Um, there was the White Shoes Memorial that was here, the Empty Shoes Memorial, was actually a temporary one. And then after some time, the shoes were taken into the church, into a Christian church, which is interesting in terms of uh, what was going on with it. And then the shoes were circulated amongst the congregation who would pray for those who were lost. So it also talks about how we can challenge a little bit about landscape architecture, that we're not just constructing permanent elements on site, but in that case, a very mobile, changing um, element that could be configuring itself in different ways and still capturing that spirit of what was in intended. Oh, well, that's true. And when you said about the, you know, the power of the empty chair, it's, uh, well, that's used a lot of ceremony too, even in, especially I was thinking of like, you know, if somebody's died close to graduation or something like that, how they will leave an empty chair with a flower on it. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine how poignant that would be. And, you know, your, your attention goes to it and thinking about who's not there. Mm -hmm. And about, uh, yeah, how that and empty shoes. Um, are there some other symbols that you found that um, uh, bring that feeling of yeah. emptiness? Well, there's, um, there was another interesting example that I looked at, which is at the uh, Jewish Museum in um, Manhattan, with the trees growing in rocks. So not so much about emptiness in that case, but about um, the ability for humans to survive uh, even in 
situations of adversity. So that was uh, one of Andy Goldsworthy's designs, and he wrote a piece about how he had looked out his window where he was staying on Broadway and saw, you know, how you sometimes see a little tree growing in a crack on a building or something like that, and it became this very powerful symbol of survival. And he captured that in his um, design for that memorial, which was a whole set of boulders that were hollowed out underneath where you can't see with these small trees growing out of them. And, you know, again, that sort of melancholy, beautiful sadness of these little trees almost struggling within the rocks and how that's about narratives of survival, narratives of adversity and so on. Oh, yeah, just the the single solitary um, object, large or small, in a vastness kind of, you know, it does kind of evoke a feeling of... uh, yeah, melancholy, yeah. sadness, peace. Yeah, yeah. vulnerability, you know, when we, we think about ourselves in the situation. Yeah. And then there's a couple of the um, potato famine memorials as well, which are to do with absence. So um, the, the Irish potato famine, because of the diaspora of Irish around the world, there's actually a number of potato famine memorials, which are um, quite interesting, again, as a group of memorials. Um, there's one in Sydney, uh, in Australia, which features uh, absence again. So there's an empty bowl and a very sad little stool at a table, um, again, looking like someone's just walked away from that site and thinking about the terrible suffering that went on in that event. And there's also one in New York as well, where they brought a whole little cottage over from Ireland and reconstructed it there. But it's, you know, it's there as a ruin, it's there as a kind of hollowed out empty and abandoned structure which talks about things that have gone rather than things that remain oh yeah that's interesting i didn't know that that they had potato famine uh memorials around the world yeah i mean one of my sort of ideas about future projects is to look further into some of those groups of memorials as well to see how the same kind of event has been recognized in different ways in different settings and what that might say about that local context as an event itself. Mm. Um, so what do you think about, like, what's the best way to um, design, like, say, cemeteries and um, places like really like that kind of grief and loss? What did you find in your research that uh, uh, helped people to heal a healing landscape and a, as well as a remembering landscape in, in a setting like that? I guess in a way I wasn't necessarily looking at healing landscapes as such because um, I mean, some of the, the commentary about melancholy is about how it tries to almost do the opposite. So sometimes mm-hmm. we have events that are very um, deep and emotional, the idea that we might just want to get over it and move on uh, doesn't really do justice to, to that event. So there's some writers, people like Karen Till, who have talked about uh, wounded cities, wounded landscapes, and how important it is to keep those wounds open in some ways, and that's through you know, various kinds of designs that um, or events that keep that uh, disaster or moment or whatever it is uh, on the radar to people's lives. How do you like, um, like, let's say? if you're designing a landscape as, as a landscape architect, you're thinking about, you're, you're reading these concepts in a book. How do you like reassure clients that, you know, uh, that this is, this is a good way to, uh, to design a park, to keep, to keep some melancholy or keep some sadness in, in the design. 
Yeah, it's a good question because, I mean, it does depend a lot on the kind of project that you're working on. And in some cases, it might not be appropriate. I mean, if you're designing uh, perhaps an inner city urban square or something like that, uh, it might not be appropriate to have a space for melancholy there. It might be a place that is very upbeat and happiness might be the, the best thing to be focusing on in terms, you know, colour and stimulation and all that kind of thing. But for other landscapes, it's probably more, um, I suppose, heightening the client's awareness of the, um, the way that we are as humans and that through excluding some of our emotions that might actually make people less well. So, I mean, a lot of this is about well-being as well because our mental well-being uh, does require a spectrum of emotion, you know, going right back to the, the ancient uh, physicians. That's one way that they diagnosed people's uh, state of health. They found that they were extremely happy or sanguine, as they called it. They might recommend or prescribe uh, something that would make you a little melancholy. So, you know, they used to talk a lot about humours and, and, and bile and that kind of thing, and it was all to do with finding balance between the upside and the downside of our being. It's not good to be too, too, too happy all the time, huh? Exactly, yeah. You'll just burn yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of funny, isn't it? The way you're right, it's in, coming back around the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> too, too much happiness is just not going to be good for you. No, no, you'd be exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> too much, too much adrenaline. Yeah. Um, well, Jackie, it's it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and 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 I feel actually a little more melancholy after this whole conversation. Hopefully, in a good way, because it's. I mean, it's Thing I always hope for, you know, in, in terms of thinking about melancholy, that it is something that people um, don't feel burdened by. Because that's certainly not the intention, you know, that we would imagine that people might um, be depressed or find melancholy to be a, a, a debilitating kind of condition. But to make space in life for quiet. Yeah, and uh, so can you, uh, can you tell our audience, oops, I kind of lost you there, are you there? Yep, yep. Okay, there. Um, I'll, I'll, we'll edit it. Um, can you tell the audience then, you know, what kind of exciting, pro exciting what kind of melancholy <laughs> projects are you have up next? Uh, well, melancholy projects that I'm working on at the moment, um, over the past couple of years, designing a memorial landscape for the Pike River mine disaster, which was a mine um, tragedy in New Zealand, just on the other side of the island here, where 29 miners were killed in a mine explosion. Um, it's been a very fraught and controversial situation um, because of the what has been unearthed since that time about how unsafe the mine was. At this very moment, there's after um, eight or nine years that will be now since the event happened, um, the authorities are making their way back into the mine, which hasn't been possible for a long time because of the levels of gas in the mine. Um, and it's basically being treated as a, a crime scene to try and go back in and find out what happened in that mine. Uh, but the design team of three of us working in a co-design process, the family of the miners who were lost, the local Maori tribe and the Department of Conservation, thinking about how we can um, create a network of different elements, including 
a memorial in a way, not again, not sort of a formal memorial with a plaque on it, but a memorial experience that tells a little bit about the, the narrative or story of that site and remembers those men, you know, who went to work and daily life and never came home. They were really at the, the mercy of the people who are running that mine. And part of the, the legacy of that has been that our health and safety legislation in New Zealand was updated um, and improved as a consequence of it. So that's a memorial in a way as well, it's not a, a landscape, but it's still something that endures as a result of that. So that's been a really challenging and, and um, very melancholy project to work on. It's in a an amazing landscape deep in the rainforest that you have to travel quite a long way in on a, a very dark and, and gloomy road. So it's incredibly atmospheric as well as this great burden of, of uh, sad memories that the site has, as well as a much deeper memory about some other events that happened in Maori history on that site too. Mm, I talk about miners. Yeah, my, my, actually my grandpa was a coal miner in West Virginia. Um, and uh, they've had um, some mining accidents uh, there in the last uh, five, six years, I think it's been. And, yeah, they use the symbol of the uh, empty miner's hat. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, here they talked about things like, um, yeah, the, the hats and also the, um, the boots, again, because, you know, these big work boots and that kind of feeling of, of I suppose, that quite masculine sense too in, in a setting like that and the, the sadness of those boots being empty all lined up there. And yet we're still we're still vulnerable to the elements. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Jackie, thank you so much for being here today. I, I've, I really appreciated your time and um, I hope to uh, hear more from you in the future. Great. Thank you, Tricia. It's been great to talk. It's, uh, it's always interesting to, you know, further unpack all these kinds of things and have a conversation about it. So it's really enjoyable. Thank you. And again, this book is Melancholy and the Landscape, Locating Sadness, Memory, and Reflection in the Landscape by Jackie Bowring, published by Routledge in 2018. Thank you so much for listening.